Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Well, uh, welcome everyone to another session of Live Talk, uh, exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. We're Happy, I hope uh, you're here, our audience. So um, welcome, Dr. Blevins, how are you? I know Thank you, you. I'm, I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Not too bad. I, I, I uh, have to tell you uh, before too long, before uh, we get in the show too much, that I, I got my flu shot on Monday and my uh, COVID show yes, uh, shot yesterday. And I'm yeah, feeling the, a little the bit double whammy, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm feeling I'm feeling a little bit peaked, not sick, but definitely feeling it. So, well, uh, peaked is good. I think that yeah. means your immune system saw it and is responding, which is a good thing, right? <laughs> yes. So, yeah. You don't yeah. ever want to get a vaccine and feel nothing. Yeah, I know. So I would worry, good. anyways, if it were me. You wonder if they gave you saline solution, right? <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to have evidence so my immune system is saying, hey, this doesn't yeah. belong, let's kill it. So yeah, that's what the fever and the myalgias are, is evidence of that underlying uh, response. Yeah. And I know that you just uh, finished your clinic, and we're going to talk about some interesting cases that you had today. But before, I thought we would uh, remind everybody that um, October is Pituitary uh, Awareness Month, and it's been one of these things that's been so uh, more lately a common, a common occurrence with you know, pituitary groups and advocates and advocates of pituitary advocates and uh, the industry in general to mark October as Awareness Month. And it's interesting because I think it's one of those efforts that uh, gives us an opportunity for everybody to talk uh, jointly and uh, uh, everybody sort of work with, a, uh, you know, work with a unified voice. Uh, I, I, want, I worry sometimes that we have to make sure that we're just not talking to ourselves. Some of these uh, events sometimes have a tendency to produce that, where we're not thinking about broader, so who else, who else are we reaching and what efforts mm -hmm. are, we, are we putting uh, in place to make sure that we reach those audiences that can uh, make a difference in, uh, in, in, in uh, recognizing these diseases and uh, uh, diagnosing, you know, early diagnosis. So, uh, I have, I, I should mention, uh, to our audience that we have, uh, have, uh, put together when we first started pituitary world news and what we call our audi audience segmentation, which, where we identified the audiences that we should be talking to. And I think it may be a good idea to publish that. Uh, and, but also if anybody's interested in learning about that, please let us know and we will send you a copy of these documents to, so you can see the work that goes into understanding how do we reach certain audiences and the type of work that goes uh, to do that. So yeah, anyway. Very good. Yeah, yeah. sort of the, the awareness is essential that uh, you, you mentioned early diagnosis, but I think that uh, it's also informed treatment and mm -hmm. uh, to learn about expectations of outcomes, to learn how to cope uh, uh, with an illness and the treatment and, and to work with family members to help them understand what's going on. So awareness is multifaceted yeah. Uh, yeah. in the arena that we're working in. Everything good comes from awareness, particularly if 
you uh, can actually shape the messages so people are the issues are communicated correctly. Uh, Even if you become aware that you're just talking to yourself, right? <laughs> so, yes. That's why we need feedback from our listeners yeah. and uh, engagement yeah. and things exactly. like that, so that we know we're not talking to ourselves. So. Which which gets yeah. us to the next subject, which is that we just published an article. I mean, minutes ago, uh, on uh, uh, that we really would like your help in uh, understanding the sort of subjects that we should be covering on um, on live talk, and uh, you know, we've been uh, you and I, as you know, we've been talking about you know the time of the day and is this the right time and when you know when are people listening and that's a difficult thing given that we're all extremely busy and obviously you with your clinic and all your work, we can only do it at certain times. But I think what we'd like to do is we published a survey and we're asking people to please let us give us their opinions uh, to ensure, we want to we make sure that the pro- program reflects the insight that we get from the audience and that we're listening to our our uh, constituents, and we shape the the discussion and the program on things that are of interest to them. And obviously, a lot of it is already of interest, but it's good to have feedback. And anyway, so we just published that. If you go to the Pituitary New- World News front page, you'll see a link to the survey. Uh, please complete it and uh, or get in touch with us. And if you want to chat about it, that's that's perfectly t- perfectly um, acceptable as well. So, anyway. yeah, let us know. Let us know what you think. Get involved and uh, get engaged. We have to be careful. <laughs> uh, I, I did a survey two years ago about our pituitary update course that we do at UCSF. It's this continuing medical education program. Yeah. I wrote to a group of uh, endocrinologist physicians on Facebook uh, about how should we do this conference? What's going to make you attend? Uh, what's, what are you looking for? And, and probably about 70 people responded. And I thought, wow, this is great. Uh, unanimously, people wanted to sort of have the conference in a certain way. And I thought, we're going to have superb attendance. So we arranged our conference, deviated from our usual schedule and plan to meet the needs of our prospective audience. Not a single one of those doctors attended the program. <laughs> so, so we, we want to have you That's help friendly. us engineer what works for you, but then we hope that you'll be honorable and participate as well. Yeah, yeah and these, we're, these we're trying are... to We're trying to engage people. We, this is a, a Pituitary World News is for the people, by the people, like the Constitution United States says, but uh, you know, we really want uh, this to be a, a, a program for people with pituitary disorders their healthcare providers and their families. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then give the opportunity to people, to, for people, like you're saying, to participate and engage and ask questions, uh, which will make it a lot more dynamic. Um, exactly. So uh, <clears throat> let's, uh, let's jump to the, the subject we're going to discuss. I know um, we have uh, some discussions coming up on, on your experience with uh, some patients that you had in clinic and uh, specifically also some uh, uh, discussion related to hypercortisolism and the advances in therapies and treatments, and which has been pretty remarkable in the last 10 years. So I'll let you 
let you get get started. With yeah, that. so I'll tell you about an interesting uh, couple of patients that I saw this week. One of them was today, in fact, and it was a gentleman who'd presented with vision loss and uh, was ultimately seen by an ophthalmologist who evaluated that and found that he had the classic visual field abnormalities of someone with pituitary disease and uh, due to a tumor uh, pressing upwards on the visual pathways. Um, he had an MRI showing that had a very large tumor, about three and a half centimeters in greatest dimension, multilobular, obviously had been there for a very long time. In a patient like this, you expect that they would have low hormone levels. Uh, most of his hormone levels are in the low part of the normal range, except his testosterone level was about uh, 1,250. And uh, his free testosterone level was also elevated. Uh, his LH was inappropriately normal because if you're taking testosterone, you should suppress your LH levels and your FSH levels. His LH was normal, but that's inappropriate. And his FSH was 65, which is the highest I've ever seen in a man. So this is one of these interesting, rare gonadotroph adenomas of the pituitary gland that's producing a functional LH and FSH molecule driving his testicles to produce massive amounts of testosterone for a man his age. Mm -hmm. So it's, in, it's interesting. We see probably about, um, I would say one of the patients similar to him every year. Uh, so that's rare, you know, it's a rare yeah. disorder to have. Interestingly, if you look at non-functioning pituitary tumors, most of them are gonadotroph adenomas are derived from the cells that produce LH and FSH in men and women. It's the most common type of non-functioning pituitary tumor. Um, to have functional ones, extremely rare. Uh, and uh, so it's interesting to see a patient like that today. Um, that's my one for the year, I suppose, but it might be a banner year. We may see three or four, you never know. You never know about this business of what you're gonna see. Yeah. You wake yeah. up in the morning, go to clinic. It's one of the things I look forward to is engaging with patients, see what does, what, what, what does this person come with? You know, what's going on? Uh, and usually we have these little twists and these interesting things that uh, something interesting every single day of my practice and it keeps me engaged in the practice of medicine. And I would assume that with pituitary <coughs> disease, uh, nothing is expected. There's always something unexpected or individual to each condition, no? That is, that exactly. makes it so interesting. Well, individual is the operative word there. And I, I, you know, you give me a hundred, like I've told you this before, a hundred yes. patients with the same diagnosis, same size tumor, you've got a hundred different illnesses because everybody's an individual and they respond differently to the biochemical changes, to the tumor, their lifestyle is different. So that's going to be affected. So you have a really a hundred different illnesses, even though you have a hundred people with the same diagnosis. So I love that individuality of the in the practice of medicine. A lot, mm -hmm. a lot of physicians these days practice according to guideline recommendations. And unfortunately, insurance companies uh, uh, propose that they're gonna pay for drugs based on what the guidelines say. And the guidelines, most of my patients don't follow the textbook or mm -hmm. the set of guidelines, and I need to be able to individualize therapy. Uh, I, I push to get away from guidelines and more individualize the treatment just because everybody is different. And we don't all respond to sort of a, according to population-based uh, data. Uh, yeah. Every, everybody has their own little normal range, for example, uh, even though the normal ranges are designed on population-based things. So that's uh, an just a different, because, di different way of looking at the practice yeah. of medicine than yeah. most. It's interesting because, you know, I think that if you were to ask 
and you know this better than I do, uh, it seems like everybody agrees with you. I mean, generally speaking, that's that's uh, guidelines are just guidelines, and you know they're to they're there to maybe they help, maybe they don't. But nevertheless, you know, like you're saying, insurance companies are 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 uh, grabbing that to just to make their decisions, and yeah. that seems uh, that seems wrong. <laughs> yeah, and not not to say that my approach is right. Uh, not everybody agrees with me. It was very yeah. interesting. I had. Uh, an encounter on on Facebook a few weeks ago of a of a physician who um, asked my opinion about a patient case and you know this you know, patients don't understand this but behind the scenes doctors yeah, will share sure. de-identify you know I have the forty six year old man with this or that over they never mention a name yeah and sometimes they post it as an anonymous endocrinologist so there's no thought of where the patient might be living or whatever so they'll They'll post and they'll ask questions. How would you manage this case? You know, we, we see this every day. Someone will tag my name and ask me about a case, and and uh, and I I thought very carefully about a case that was presented to me online and and uh, gave an answer to um, how I would manage that patient based on my thirty years of experience of dealing with patients with pituitary disorders. And um, one of the um, endocrinologist who's mostly a diabetes doctor and doesn't see many patients with pituitary diseases responded to my comment and says, well, that's not what the guidelines say. <laughs> and, uh, and my response was, well, you know, I'm here to tell you that not all patients fit the guidelines and you have to individualize care. And here is why I recommended these things to the physician. Uh, and then the endocrinologist who, spoke the guideline says well i don't really care what you have to say anyways so i blocked her <laughs> so if she didn't care what i have to say she'll not see my responses to other doctors you know they ask my opinion not hers anyways you know so, uh, so yeah interesting um but yeah individualization of care is is important um so the the next question i want to talk about was one yeah. that sort of highlights awareness uh, and and understanding um, of diseases and disease presentations and things of that nature. So it's awareness on a physician level, and, you know, patient level too. But I, you know, I think that when we talk about awareness, we need to recognize that when we go to medical school and through residency and fellowship and then in the practice of medicine, we become aware, if you will, of diseases, disease patterns of presentation, consequences of diseases and their treatments, what happens if you don't get control, et cetera. So we, we're becoming enlightened as physicians every day of our lives. Mm -hmm. And part of this awareness is to become aware of how diseases present and how they're best managed and things like that. And this, this patient highlights that. It has to do with, with hypercortisolism. So it's a, a gentleman who was evaluated, found that, interestingly, another one found they have high testosterone levels, but uh, it looks like the testosterone levels in this case were elevated because sex hormone binding globulin levels elevated. The free testosterone was normal. But because of these abnormalities and some other things going on, the patient had an MRI, was referred to me to see if they had a pituitary disorder, but there's really no pituitary disorder at all. Um, sort of along the, the way the physicians uh, caring for this person, probably because they were concerned about pituitary disease and a possible tumor, which isn't there, decided to work him up for Cushing's. And um, 
that seems to be the, to me the reason that they proceeded. I may be incorrect on that, but I couldn't really ascertain more from the records that I received. Yeah. Uh, and the patient had some abnormal testing, uh, test results. Uh, we'll talk about those test results in a moment. Was seen by another physician who said, no, this is not pituitary Cushing's. This is not Cushing's whatsoever because of these reasons. And um, he saw me to evaluate this possible pituitary lesion. I saw the rest of the state and said, you know what? I think you might have adrenal Cushing's. Uh, and it's because I'm aware of how these people present, and none of these other physicians, I think, were aware of that. So uh, it, it was a good case to talk about uh, being aware of Cushing's and and some of the presentations, and uh, and, uh, and even if you're aware, to be able to decide to do the proper testing and evaluation based on the uh, small likelihoods, but certainly enriched populations where there is a likelihood that's higher than the normal population. So I thought it was a very interesting patient. Um, so bottom line is that uh, he had a history of being overweight and hypertension and the blood pressure got better when he lost weight, uh, but he was still overweight. And um, the physicians had done a couple of overnight one milligram dexamethasone suppression tests, which is a good screening test. The problem is it's not specific. It's very sensitive. It's going to pick up everybody with Cushing's, but you're going to have some false positive tests as well. And his results were abnormal around 2.3 on one occasion, 2.5 on another, uh, normal being less than 1.8. So those are two positive diagnostic tests. His 24-hour urine cortisol was slightly elevated, uh, suggesting that, yeah, he does make too much cortisol, but you wonder, is this stress or whatever? Most people who are under stress will suppress with dexamethasone. He didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, his ACTH level was in the normal range, but it was low normal, and it suppressed profoundly with dexamethasone, as it should in a normal person, but his cortisol didn't turn off. Uh, so that whole picture with his cardiac, I think he had some coronary disease as well. So he has a cardiometabolic history, two abnormal dex suppression tests, minimal elevation in urine cortisol, and an ACTH level that was low normal and suppressed readily with dexamethasone, but cortisol didn't turn off. To me, that's classic for people with adrenal adenomas. We're going to do a CT scan to look for an adrenal adenoma. And uh, I spoke to one of the physicians who had seen him and said, you know, I think this might be the problem. And they said, wow, that's pretty interesting. Tell me why you believe that. And I shared that information and there was a lack of awareness, if you will, of the fact that this is typically how patients present. Uh, mm. So uh, we know it's not a pituitary condition, but any pituitary endocrinologist who's seen patients with Cushing is going to be seeing a lot of people who have adrenal disease accounting for hypercortisolism. Right now I'm working up three people in my practice, another, well, four. Um, one has been referred to the endocrine surgeons to have adrenalectomy. The next one has been referred but may consider medical therapy. Another one is currently undergoing uh, an investigation just to confirm that it's adrenal, even though there's an adrenal mass. And then the fourth one is this patient today who's going to have a CT. So we see a lot of adrenal diseases when we, when we do pituitary diseases. Uh, it's just the, the nature of how the two uh, sort of are interconnected through the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And so, one of, 
I was going to ask you, the, yeah, just uh, the, the question that comes to my mind. So the, the referring physician then has to have an awareness that even he doesn't know the answer, he has to look elsewhere for an answer. If And what happens to this patient if he doesn't land with a physician that doesn't think that way or doesn't have the awareness? And this patient never lands in your practice or the practice of any experienced pituitary endocrinologist. It's, it goes to the stories we hear constantly about people going from doctor to doctor. Nobody has the answers. Nobody yeah. comes up with the right questions. Mm -hmm. That's, that's well, the it's dynamic, a, right? The, it's a very good question. So you're asking about those consequences of untreated disease. What happens to these people? Yeah. Uh, and we can talk about those with adrenal disease. And adrenal Cushing's is different than pituitary Cushing's uh, in yeah. presentation, timeline. Adrenal Cushing's creeps up on you, can be very severe, and you won't even know it unless you have an astute clinician sort of, you know, connects the dots and, and suspects the disease process and does the evaluation and confirms the finding. Uh, and we'll talk more about where those patient groups are that might have that situation in a moment. But what happens long-term, let's say adrenal adenomas of, and patients with a, this, these are from studies of patients who have been known to have adrenal adenomas. And what we know about adrenal adenomas is that a certain percentage, depending on the study, anywhere from say 10 to 35 or 40% of people have evidence for dysregulated cortisol secretion from adrenal adenomas if you study them carefully enough. Adrenal adenomas occur in about 8 to 10% of the population of older people who get a scan of their abdomen for whatever reason. It's like thyroid nodules, glands sometimes form nodules, and uh, mm -hmm. sometimes those nodules produce hormones. And one of the uh, concerns about adrenal nodules is do they produce a number of, or one, or one of a number of different hormones, uh, with one of the uh, important ones being cortisol. So... We know that's more common than meets the eye. So a lot of these people uh, at the time of presentation will have things like high, hypertension, diabetes, osteoporosis, or what have you. And I'll talk about all that later. But in the long-term studies where they've taken people who've been found to have an adenoma and they know there might be some abnormal dexamethasone suppression testing, they follow, you know, one study reported on uh, a review of the analysis of the literature of over 4,000 people who fit in this boat to answer the question that you asked. And what they found was a significant proportion of these people develop worsening high blood pressure, requiring multiple medications, complications of hypertension, including coronary artery disease, hyperlipidemia, weight gain, uncontrolled diabetes mellitus, and consequences of diabetes. And there's a higher mortality, uh, overall mortality attributed to these disorders. So there are probably a ton of people out there who have hypertension, diabetes, obesity. Mm -hmm. They have Most of them have what we call metabolic syndrome, which is a multigenetic, multifactorial disorder that leads to these illnesses that afflict us and cause people to be overweight. A small proportion of them actually have Cushing's, uh, right. probably due to adrenal disease. And we know through these studies that uh, they they ultimately languish and they have a premature uh, uh, death as a consequence of their underlying condition. So it's as a as an endocrinologist who wants to increase awareness and get people to diagnosis so they can get treated and live healthier lives and spend less money on medications and more quality time with their families or at work or whatever it is they want to do. 
Yeah. I, I am all about awareness and increasing the awareness and educating physicians about where to look for these cases. How, yeah. How to case diagnose and pick pick out those people who have Cushing's in the general population. Cushing's is rare. Actually, the most common cause of a Cushingoid looking patient in a, in a clinical practice is a patient taking high dose steroids for something asthma, skin diseases, rheumatologic conditions, what have you. Mm. Um, uh, allergies, you know, any, any one of autoimmune conditions where they treat with steroids, those people get Cushingoid. And so doctors see people with Cushing's all the time. But then when someone has a pituitary tumor or renal tumor, they don't seem to make sense of it. They don't say, oh, you look like somebody on steroids. Are you taking them? No. Any injections in your knees for bursitis or whatever? No. Well, let's check your cortisol levels. You know, that doesn't seem to happen as it should in the practice of medicine. So we have to educate people with adrenal disease in a totally different way because the patients present differently. Some of them have very mild cortisol uh, abnormalities and cortisol secretion. Others have moderate and others have severe. Uh, the larger the tumor, the more likely you're going to have severe hypercortisolism. Many of my patients with adrenal disease have either high normal or normal or slightly elevated urine cortisol excretion rates. So their Cushing's isn't severe, but the way cortisol is secreted in the day that's different from normal can result in symptoms and signs. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, our goal of heightening awareness to help people figure out who has that. Uh, so, so you, where do we look? So there, there have been several studies looking at people with diabetes mellitus, new onset type two diabetes mellitus, and the studies show a range of about three to eight percent of people with new onset type two diabetes mellitus in adulthood have abnormalities in cortisol secretion, and a number of those people have adrenal adenomas. Every once in a while, they find someone with pituitary cushions in those studies, but. Uh, uh, adrenal adenomas are a common cause of that. Hypertension. Uh, I can't remember the rates, about 8% of people with hypertension have some other cause rather than just run of the mill hypertension. Yeah. That used to be said 10 to 20%. One study says 8%. A number of those people have Cushing's as a cause of their hypertension. Uh, and then osteoporosis, cortisol which destroys bone uh, when it's made in excess. So uh, unexplained osteoporosis in a young person, probably 3% or so or more, maybe even a little more have, have Cushing's when they have unexplained osteoporosis. So uh, when we see, say, osteoporosis in a young man or a woman who's still having menses, we think, why is the bone loss so evident here? We have to figure out why. And you look at, uh, you look at cortisol and you find that some of these people have adrenal adenomas. And even pituitary Cushing's as well. I mean, we see both in that setting. Yeah. So there's a whole host of uh, illnesses that um, are part of the conundrum of Cushing's that uh, we think of that Cushing's is a syndrome. It's a constellation of physical findings. And Harvey Cushing, who first described this in 1912 to 1914 era, did, did the world a service by describing an illness that was related to pituitary tumor that got his name ascribed to it that we now cause Cushing syndrome for general Cushing's and Cushing's disease of pseudopituitary. But in a way that sort of led to the classic textbook teaching that this is what people with Cushing's look like. So then that's that's almost the exception rather than the rule. The rule is and now nowadays we diagnose people who don't look that way all the time or who have 
you know, abnormal weight gain, but don't look cushionoid. You know, anybody who gains 40 to 80 pounds in a year, you better work them up for Cushing's. Mm -hmm. They may not look like Cushing's original patient and a lot of the other textbook cases, but you got to think about it, even if they don't look that way. Uh, and the people with hypertension and diabetes who have adrenal adenomas, they're not going to, it's rare that they'll look like the Harvey Cushing's original index patient which we were all taught to look for is like, this is what Cushing's looked like. Yeah. Uh, but these people have it still and they still need it treated to sort of improve their bone density, decrease their cholesterol levels, improve the blood sugar control and their blood pressure as well. So they can live longer and healthier lives. Mm. So that's a, that's the, um, issue with the adrenal Cushing's and it, just knowing about this and being aware helps me think about the fact that my patient, I told him, I said, there's a 50-50 chance that you have an adrenal tumor based on your clinical presentation, in my opinion, yeah. uh, de dealing with Cushing's patients for over 30 years now. It's uh, similar then to the, the acromegaly conundrum, if you, could, if you could call it that, where not, a lot, not everybody that has acromegaly looks like uh, the, the physical characteristics are not, are not uh, you know, uh, yeah, acromeg acromegaly is classic. Not you know the interesting thing about acromegaly is people with acromegaly look more like each other than they do their own family members. Yeah, and uh, and it's very curious the the uh, a human being when they're exposed to too much growth hormone and IGF one they undergo yeah. these constellation of features yeah. and changes. Yeah. Um, but not everybody with acromegaly has those. That's right. Uh, you know, if you look at the literature, 95% of people with acromegaly have enlargement of the hands and feet. But that's almost 3% of the original reasons for presentation or yeah. what I call the gateway or the gateway diagnosis. So the gateway disease or diagnosis is what brings them to the gate of having a pituitary disorder. And the uh, acral enlargement, while it's the most common thing and almost everybody with acromegaly has it, it's only about 3% of people that come to medical attention because of that. Maybe their rings stuck and they have to have yeah. it cut off and the doctor thinks about yeah. that or whatever. Um, and a lot of those other gateway uh, illnesses are overlooked. You know, people are diagnosed with sleep apnea and people think, oh, you're just another one of these thousands of people that have sleep apnea. But many of them have acromegaly and their yeah. first their first opportunity for a physician to make the diagnosis is that they have a, a sleep apnea and physicians should be thinking with every person that comes sleep apnea, does this patient have acromegaly, at least do an IGF-1 and test for yeah. it, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, carpal tunnel syndrome is another potential gateway uh, for acromegaly. Many people with acromegaly get carpal tunnel syndrome and a few people with acromegaly are diagnosed because of the carpal tunnel syndrome. And most of the people uh, who have these gateway illnesses or diagnoses have a long laundry list of gateway illnesses and diagnoses that no one back put it together and said, this is a constellation yeah. that's the same constellation that we named acromegaly, uh, you know, yeah. back in the so 1800s. In that, so. Yeah. And, and from that point of view, Cushing's and acromegaly are so, so similar, no? Yeah, they're very similar in that setting just because of the, the myriad of presentations and complications. You know, hypertension, diabetes, all those. I've seen patients with acromegaly who presented in, in a multitude of these different ways. The most common gateway presentation for people with acromegaly is incidental. Unfortunately, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we need to we need to improve awareness because yeah. most of, somebody gets a bump on the head, go to go to the ER, they get a scan, they find a pituitary tumor, they're sent to my clinic because they have a pituitary tumor. 
they walk in, I walk in the door of the room they're sitting in. It's like, Oh, you have acromegaly. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, to me, it's a doorway diagnosis, their gateway to come into this arena of the, this realm of pituitary disease was by bumping their head on a garage door or something like that. And, yeah. uh, that, but but then they have everything that goes along with acromegaly, and they've had these problems for years, and uh, that's where the awareness needs to 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 be uh, refined and and tuned, so that uh, physicians are aware. Oh, sleep apnea. Let's check an IGF one and thyroid yeah. functions, for example. Yeah. Colon polyps in a young person. Let's check for acromegaly. You know, it could be familial yeah. colon polyposis. Could be acromegaly. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and I'd like to see that with all, all sorts of pituitary disorders. Another one of my pet peeves is that, uh, and, I, and I gave a lecture this week to a group of internists on this topic. One of, uh, one of the things that, or two things that we commonly see in the pituitary world are women present with irregular menses or even maybe missing periods and, uh, and, uh, and even hot flashes. And they go to the gynecologist who says, all my patients have this. This is a normal thing. But really, truthfully, it's the first sign of their underlying pituitary tumor. And, yeah. Uh, you know, physicians become jaded or they think that things are common and they forget to get back to the basics. We have to wonder why this person's menstrual periods, which were normal for 20 years, are now abnormal. Yeah. And if they wondered about that, they could arrive at the conclusion of a pituitary tumor. Yeah. Same thing is true of men. You know, how many men have erectile dysfunction? They go to the doctor says, get a, here's a prescription for Viagra. I don't have time to talk to you about why you're having trouble with erections. And and if they bother to check a testosterone level, the testosterone's low, and they just give them a shot of testosterone, sometimes a gel or what have you. And nobody bothers yeah. to say, I wonder the why underlying... your testosterone level is low. Let's yeah. work that up. If they did, they would find the underlying pituitary tumor. So mm. th that's where the awareness comes at the medical school level too. And that uh, physicians have to be taught to think in this way, not only about pituitary disorders, but every single condition, you know, and I, I first became aware of this mode of considering the differential diagnosis when I was in medical school, but saw it really play out firsthand and started paying attention to this when I was in my residency. And we had a, a, a physician at the university where I was doing my residency training who uh, was fairly healthy and then was diagnosed with uh, asthma. And she didn't respond to asthmatic medication, so they just kept giving her the asthma medications. A year later, she was diagnosed with this very rare, rare malignancy of the, of the trachea or the windpipe, and she mm -hmm. succumbed to that cancer. Um, and it was that cancer all along, you know, but they didn't consider the differential diagnosis and what else could this be? You know, they just treated her symptoms instead of trying to figure out why does she have these symptoms? And so I, I practice medicine that way. I try to teach people to practice medicine and that consideration of a differential diagnosis and uh, being aware of the diseases that could, could affect a patient because that's part yeah. of it. If you don't know a disease exists, you're not going to diagnose it. So yeah. you have to have to improve that awareness and, when I think back to my own training, we didn't really have much training in pituitary disease. I got my interest in pituitary disease during my residency, where I had a, probably about six people in a, in a year and a half period who had uh, pituitary disorders that I thought were fascinating and interesting mm. and, and unsuspected. Uh, so I yeah. sort of developed an interest at that point. Uh, yeah, the science, the science, even for the layperson, it's so fascinating uh, just to... Just to learn the 
the many, many, many issues that are connected to hormones and pituitary. But I, I was yeah. going to go back to your comment about uh, awareness. And, you know, we, as you know, we started talking about this in 2014, a few years after I was diagnosed and awareness, the dynamics of how that happens. And obviously you have to know about something to be aware of it and then think about it. But, but if it happens. We always remember, we always talked about this dynamic. If you could have the doctor connecting the dots earlier, because he has pituitary disease in his, in his radar, let's say, and the patient as well, you know, mm-hmm. aware that these uh, uh, diseases exist and that you know maybe a question could guide the physician immediately to uh, to uh, to suspect something uh, uh, so smart questions from the from the uh, uh, patients is also part of the this whole dynamic of i want to recognize this or i want you to recognize this earlier yeah. than you would if we yeah. didn't have this discussion it's very interesting how that works you know, the I was thinking of the converse side of awareness when we had a discussion today with my team of uh, uh, the nurse and uh, the scribes about, uh, I, I guess it would be the converse of awareness. Yeah. In that part of awareness is understanding what it could be and what the presentation of disease is and the, and the chronic uh, complications and all of that. But part of awareness is just recognizing what's not. Uh, that's right you know and that comes to experience as well you know yeah. i see patients who have unusual things all the time like today we had a guy who uh, said that he had noticed a change in his sense of smell uh, and uh, wondered if that was related to his pituitary tumor and his doctors were telling him him no and when you look at his scan you think well how can, how in the world could this be related to his pituitary tumor you know the, the olfaction pathways are nowhere near it uh, but I had a patient probably 10 years ago who was a neurologist who his initial presentation was a change in his sense of smell. When he had his tumor removed, his sense of smell normalized. And he did some research and found some evidence of some old papers and new papers and ideas that suggested that maybe his sense of smell was related to his pituitary tumor. But with that aside, the, the more important thing is that we, we see a lot of patients who have unusual complaints uh, they don't fit with any of the hormone deficiency states or hormone excess states or complications of surgery or complications of therapy. And they see their primary physicians and their primary physicians just punt to the endocrinologist to say, it's your, it's your hormones, it's your yeah. pituitary thing. And, yeah. uh, you know, we have enough, every, every week we deal with something where that happens and we have to often tell patients, no, we have everything right on the money. We're very happy with your levels. You have the same levels you had Last year, when you were doing fine, there's something else causing the, the problem. And the reason we were having the discussion today was it was a patient who I, I don't delegitimize symptoms and signs and the fact that people don't feel well, uh, but I'll tell them when I don't think it's related to the hormone system. And I had this lady who uh, ended up uh, ultimately having uh, premature coronary artery disease and required a bypass when we suggested that she seek care to figure out exactly what's going on. And let's not try to blame this on a hormone abnormality. You've got to talk to your doctor and figure it out. Another patient years ago who uh, had another cardiac problem, a very rare cardiac problem, his doctor kept telling me it was the hormones to come back and see me. And I simply said, tell me what's bothering you. Tell me how you feel, what's going on. 
And I said, I think you have a cardiac problem. You need to see a cardiologist right away. And he required yeah. heart, heart surgery for that. Yeah. Um, so there are, you know, we're human beings and a lot of different things can affect us as a consequence of our biology and uh, our design. So we have to recognize that we get other diseases too. And just because you have an endocrine disorder doesn't mean it's... Uh, uh, whatever's, whatever's ailing you is related to that. Yeah, and that's of part of a, that's part of awareness as well. So when we yeah. educate educate people through pituitary world news and in the clinic when we're meeting with them, we like to uh, make people aware of what's not related as well. And that's part part of the picture that we yeah. we must consider. So why don't we remind everybody that uh, you're listening to uh, live talk on pituitary world news, and today is uh, Dr. Blevins and I discussing. Uh, pituitary awareness month and awareness in general and some very interesting case and in hypercortisolism from Dr. Blevins's practice um, and remind everybody also that uh, these programs are recorded and that we typically publish them one or two days after the live show so if you didn't get a chance to hear the whole thing uh, you can come back and listen to it or at, at your convenience there's I think uh 16 live sessions already with this one that we have produced and they're all on the on-demand section. Excellent. So, yeah. so Jorge, you traveled to Scotland recently. Yes, uh, I did. And uh, the interesting thing about Scotland, you, you may or you probably are aware of, is that in Ireland and Scotland... Uh, it's the land a, of acromegaly. The land of acromegaly. There are giants among those uh, highlands, right? Yeah. So. I was. Uh, yeah. Did you see any people with acromegaly while you were over there? I did, Other than... I did not. Isn't that funny? Okay. But it was yeah. very interesting because I stayed, we stayed, my wife and I stayed at this place called Ten, um, Ten Place, I think it is. And it's a surgeon's quarter, which is right next to the medical school. And uh, in on uh, just not far from the uh, Royal Mile in Edinburgh. And uh, it was fascinating because we went to the. Uh, Museum, the medical, the uh, 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 surgeon's museum. Oh, it was, it's the most fascinating yeah. thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, but yeah, Scotland was very interesting. And uh, yeah, it's a land of, of giants. As a matter of fact, I when I was diagnosed, I was uh, tested for one of the AIP genes that comes, which is yeah. one of the... Uh, um, uh, uh, genetic uh, mutations of the of yeah. acromegaly. So, yeah, often yeah. seeing people with acromegaly, there's a couple of hot spots around the world. One of them being Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. You know, probably Wales. You know, where you have that. Uh, and, and Marta Carbonitz has obviously done a lot of work yeah. to figure that out. And yeah, one of the fascinating stories is that there's this story of the Irish giant, and you can learn a lot if you just search the Irish giant and read about his life and how his body was snatched and his bones ultimately showed up later. And now he's in a museum. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he died and prematurely of acromegaly. Yeah. So, we... yeah. So Marta did the work and showed that his mutation was this AIP mutation. Yeah. And I, I am pretty, pretty certain that my acromegaly comes from those lines because both my uh, grandparents from my maternal grandparents were Scottish. Mm -hmm. And my great grandmother was Welsh, so there you go. Yeah, you're right there in the thick of it. In the thick of things. <laughs> so, what did you see? Anything pituitary related at the museum in Scotland? 
Uh, no, there was a very interesting early things on neurosurgery and the uh, oh. sort of holes they used to make on people's heads <laughs> in the old days. Uh, yeah, this is pretty. It was pretty fascinating. Lots of formaldehyde uh, canisters with things in it. And, yeah. Uh, but also the um, the early diseases, you know, like tuberculosis and syphilis and things like that, and the the effect uh -huh. that they've had on these populations is quite uh, unforgettable, I should say. Yeah. Uh, but very interesting. And this this uh, lovely hotel that we stayed at is a nonprofit that uh, is designed to provide um, uh, scholarships for students that want to go into into, uh, into medical school in Scotland. So Interesting. I thought, yeah. I thought it was a wonderful idea. I said, oh, we're going to stay there just to... Yeah, to, cool. Uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, the Highlands was... I mean, the <laughs> highlight was... Obviously, the Highlands are beautiful in Scotland, up, up north. So we spent a few days uh, driving around and... Uh, looking at some really interesting sites and uh, testing some wonderful uh, single malts as well. Awesome. And you got to experience some bagpipes as well, I understand. So Yeah, yeah, we heard some, yeah. some bagpipes. Yeah. yeah, it's wonderful. So, yeah, we heard a one. I think I sent you a copy of one. It was a, a Scottish uh, small pipe. Uh, yeah, it's very very beautiful sound. Not as creaky as the... Um, you know, as the big pipes that you, we are all familiar with. These are, these are very melodic and very beautiful sounds. So lots of music, great music. And, yeah, so. You made the comment about seeing the the surgery where they have the holes in the head that that was called trimpening, and it used to be a common way to, well, in some cases they would do that to relieve pressure in the brain. Yeah, especially if you had a brain bleed or something like that, yeah. and it worked. But yeah. other times they would do that to re release evil humors and things like that, and that was certainly barbaric. But um, yeah. <laughs> this is doctor humor. It's very funny. But it used to be that they would just leave those holes open, but in modern days we close them up after you yeah. create this hole to relieve pressure, for example. They used to put, put metal uh in in those and i remember as a kid you'd grow up and someone would say hey see that guy over there he's got a steel plate in his head that's why he's different or whatever you know because <laughs> he'd had brain surgery yeah um, the uh in modern medicine they use this sort of a plastic type thing that they spray spray or spread on your on your skull after closing the dura and it and it basically has the same character and quality of bone uh, yeah it's not a living substance, but it does a much better job than they used to. But I was thinking about all this the other day as I was driving by a construction zone and I saw this sign, you know, how they'll put these holes in the road, then they put these really thick steel plates over the hole in the road. And the sign said, steel plate ahead. And I got rid of the A and steel plate head. And I had a little laugh. It's just a, reminded me of the way it used to be when I was in medical school that people would actually get steel plates put in there. Yeah. Yeah. What was really interesting? I'm not sure if it was steel, but at least metallic. So. Yeah, one of the things that was really interesting was to see the early surgical instruments. Uh, you know, these are turn of the century, even 1800s, or uh, some of the uh, things that they used to do. Let's say in World War One, uh, the surgeons, the field surgeons, is quite quite uh, uh, graphic and amazing. You know that. Uh, 
and it's it's all there. You know, it's a very interesting, very interesting uh, place. That's been an art and a science on its own. The whole development of surgical tools to enable yeah. surgeons to accomplish the job that they need to do, especially with neurosurgery, it's just astounding. Yeah, uh, and you know, many neurosurgeons have developed instruments out of necessity that I need something to help me do this. So they'll they'll develop an interest in, instrument, get a patent, and then you know they're set for life with the income from that, which is perfectly great, I think. But, yeah. Uh, you know, sort of necessity is the uh, mother of invention, as they say. And, yeah, uh, that's that's really true. in the development of surgical instruments, even in the past thirty years that I've been a physician, things. Have yeah, it was very interesting to hear uh, your discussion with uh, Dr. Kunwar a couple of weeks ago on precisely that. You know, the instrumentation and the techniques and everything else, and the the work that uh, uh, people like Charlie Wilson did with pituitary surgery to move it forward you know transphenoidal surgeries and it's, it's amazing the, the change no yeah it's, a, it's absolutely incredible yeah. and the the operating microscopes for, are another example of how surgeons can now see things that you can you can hardly discern and use instruments to dissect things that you could hardly see before yeah uh, with the microscope so they can do microsurgery in the brain. It's I, I go to the operating room several times a year and watch my colleagues remove various and sundry tumors and do different things. And I'm just yeah. astounded by the, the work that neurosurgeons do uh, in, the, in this realm using the tools and the microscopes that they have. Things uh, that weren't possible 10 years ago, even, yeah. you know, and certainly 30 years ago when I was in medical school. Neurosurgery has evolved. It it's gone from an area where they they used to focus on taking things out of the brain, and now they're even putting things in the brain to control movement disorders and treat epilepsy and uh, wafers to control brain tumors and things like that. The installation part of neurosurgery has really grown by leaps and bounds in the past past two yeah. or three decades. Yeah, it's all all good stuff. Yeah. There are lots of benefits to uh, um, medical science and, you know, on just in, in the realm of awareness, I like to make patients aware of the fact that participating in clinical trials is a very useful thing. You're not only mm -hmm. going to benefit from it, but legions of people yeah. behind you uh, for future generations will benefit as well. Yes. How um, I was talking to someone about patient at uh, patient naive clinical trials, which means that these are patients that go into clinical trials directly without having been on any therapies before. These are that, So the clinical trial would be the first time, or the first time they get any kind of therapy against right. their disease. What, um, what, what's your take on that? How, sounds interesting, sounds uh, difficult uh, yeah. decision to make because you, you're you're sending, you know, someone to for a test, basically. Yeah, basically, something that's not proven. Basically, the test it's not proven, you know. And yeah. The, and yeah. the reason to do it is to prove it. The good news is most of those, not all, but most of those studies, there's enough conceptual framework and early phase trials or animal trials that suggest that a treatment might be useful, or that the uh, drug is good. The drug is probably going to turn out to be good. Sometimes yeah. they prove not to be. 
Uh, and the the other good news is many of these trials are of a of a short enough term to where there's not going to be any harm from progression of the underlying disease, and hopefully they're not going to find any harm with the drug. Yeah. But I I see patients who enter those uh, naive, un, previously untreated trials as the true heroes uh, for us all in America. Yes. Just because. They're saying, I've got this disease. I maybe have had it like for acromegaly for 20 or 30 years. I want it treated, but I'm willing to try this to see if this new treatment's any good before I go have my surgery. That That's a hero for you yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I was thinking about it because I, I, you always think about it when you have a, as if somebody would come and say, well, you know, would you try it? And I, I think I would just because of that reason. And then I know that, you know, they, they take such, amazing care in having rescue plans and constant checking to make sure that this medication is is at least doing something and if it's not then you know it, it, it it's there's a rescue plan or there's something you can go back to your yeah. old uh, medication but yeah you're absolutely right it's it's a, i would think a very tough decision but also one that needs to be totally respected because it's the yeah. only way we're going to be able to to make uh, headway and new with new medications, yeah, with exactly. rare diseases yeah. that is so difficult because it's so difficult to yeah. to find you know uh, the correct sample to test. I think playing a role in these studies is it reminds me of that movie that came back. It came out in the nineteen eighties called Paying It Forward. You know, you're paying it forward to society, and hopefully, yeah. good good things come back to you as a result of of doing so. And yeah, I mean, you know let's be frank, it's pituitary disease, right? It's not like you're in the emergency room having acute chest pain and they say, you're having a heart attack. Yeah. Do you want us to squirt this stuff in your veins or take you straight to surgery or do nothing? I mean, yeah. that's a research, like do whatever's going to work. Yeah. You know, so some research projects are easier to participate in than others. And, yes. And uh, and are going to be potentially less life-threatening or harm, harmful. Yeah, yeah. Those studies need to be done too. You know, the, yeah. I remember when they were doing all the tissue plasminogen activator studies where they were randomizing people to get standard treatment versus getting this plus standard treatment. Some were going to bleed to death. Some mm -hmm. were going to probably have a delay in surgery and things like that. So those are the real true, uh, you know, frontline heroes. But everybody who participates in clinical trials is a hero in my book. Yeah, definitely. Most definitely. But we're getting uh, towards the end of the show here. I can't believe the hour went by. It seems like it was five minutes and we were chatting. Yeah, good so discussion. Inter interesting discussion. Uh, was there anything else that you wanted to... To mention about, I'm just thinking about some of the things coming up. Uh, we are um, going to publish um, uh, a, an article for people to uh, learn about the issues we're having with some social media, where we're not getting the distribution that we need. We've mentioned it before, so um, there's going to be a, a push to hopefully for people to subscribe to PWN. So we have to rely less on on social media yeah. and we make sure that uh, whoever is liking us on social media get the information that we publish yeah, exactly. um, that that no happens the good news like we've mentioned before is that we are getting um a, a lot a lot of uh, or what's called organic searches and and people are finding us on the web mm -hmm. which is which is wonderful yeah, so our overall our audience is is up but our social media is uh it's a it, frustrating to say the least particularly yeah. with facebook and their 
how they're playing with the algorithm. So anyway. I like to sort of inform everybody that Manisha, Dr. Manisha Agi, one of the pituitary surgeons at UCSF, who joined us, I think, for our very first radio show. Our first one, be, yes. yeah, going to be joining us again next week. Excellent. Uh, and then in the near future, we're going to have Dr. Ezekiel Goldschmidt, who's a new surgeon at our place, been there about a year now, who does skull-based surgery and endoscopic pituitary surgery to talk about that program at UCSF. And uh, he's, uh, he's a fellow Argentinian like yourself. Yes. And uh, he's, uh, he's already getting some international referrals because of his excellent surgical abilities. Yeah. And, yeah. and I want to talk about the things he's doing at UCSF. Uh, and I understand we're going to try to get you and he together to do a, a, a show in Spanish. So. We are. So we can publish it in our PWN in Espanol. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. People absolutely. may not be aware of that. So why don't yeah. you talk about that initiative? Uh, well, we have been uh, publishing in Spanish, not to the extent that we do in English, but it's something that we want to increase as, uh, as much as we can uh, to reach the, the Spanish-speaking world and in uh, Latin America, Spain, and the you know the U.S. Uh, Hispanic market as well, I th we think that uh, there's a tremendous need for information, and we hope to be able to to put as much content as we have in the English version as we have in the Spanish. It is available, and uh, there's a link in uh, in our website for the for the Spanish uh, 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 version or edition, I should say. So so definitely check it out. Um, uh, we we're hoping uh, to uh, um, get you know contributions in, in from uh, uh, content content contributions I should say uh, or, or original Spanish uh, speaking doctors that could publish on their cases and give us some information and uh, interviews and and all of those things that that uh, make up for great content so. And we'd be Stay delighted tuned. to we'd be delighted to find out a way to do the same in some other uh, of the more common languages around the world. Yes, yeah, you know the uh, French acromegaly group has expressed some interest. Uh, uh, the uh, one of their representatives was in in some of the uh, World Alliance of Pituitary Organizations um, meetings, and one of them attended the uh, acromegaly community. Um, uh, 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 meeting uh, this this past April, and we had a, a very good chat about possibly doing that. This would be in f to start in French. Uh, so, yeah, the more languages, the better. There's some um, really good technology out there uh, for translation, but it's really not quite there yet. Uh, it, it requires a lot of editing, um, but at the very least, I think we can get some general information in some languages. Mm -hmm. Very good. Uh, yeah. Well, it looks like we're out of time. I yes. wanted to thank everybody for joining us today. And uh, as usual, feel free to reach out to us and uh, let us know what's on your mind. Take a look at the survey that we spoke about earlier and uh, give us your feedback and help us design pituitary live talk to meet your needs and to encourage you to participate with us live. Yeah. And don't forget to tune in next week to hear Dr. Manish Aji again. We're looking forward to his discussion. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a non-profit organization 
supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.